0: a meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more this is peak speed and we're back with exciting news yes
1: we are now professional we have a sponsor for the show which is awesome for us but even more
0: awesome for you indeed because who doesn't love a sweet sweet online shopping discount code and in this case it's an online shopping discount code that gets you delicious coffee delivered to your doorstep from our good friends prism coffee who are four canberra lads who i've known for a while uh who've all worked in and around the specialty coffee industry for some time now and now uh, out on their own they've got a roaster they're roasting beans uh, and just generally kicking ass with delicious coffee
1: So, John, how do the people get this amazing discount you speak of?
0: Go to their website, which is prismcoffee.com.au. Pick from the couple of different blends and some single origins that they've got. You can get it ground. You can get it in whole beans if you prefer to grind your own. They've got all of the options. Uh, And then you use the code Peakspeak in the discount bit of the shopping cart. And uh, you'll get a sneaky 10% off and it'll rock up on your doorstep in some amount of time i don't remember exactly what it is but i think they express post everything so hopefully quickly
1: perfect amazing and well that's it without further ado here's, here's the episode yeah. enjoy presented by thomas lilly and john Sheridan. and baby crying in the background not included we're back another we episode of week speak oh, oh. <laughs>
2: Man, I, I was offended enough to be invited, but I'm definitely <laughs> offended now that you're infringing on my content yet again.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it wasn't in, like, for those of you who aren't familiar with Weekly Weights, it was actually a, a compliment, not an insult. Uh, sounds like an insult, <laughs> week speak It's like, <laughs> it's our <laughs> guest for the week, Will Week Berkman. Uh, but we have Will Berkman from Weekly Weights. Welcome, my friend.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. I wish I could say it's a pleasure to be here. Um, <laughs> If anything, it, it does feel like a little bit of an insult to me, obviously, like we've got a pretty long running podcast beef, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad to, to grace your podcast. We've had both of you on mine and those were really enjoyable episodes. So, so it's okay, good goodness. to be
1: here. You guys must be close to 200,000 downloads.
2: No, no, we've slowed down a bit of late. I think, um, we've taken I think over. we're sitting, sorry, madam <laughs> we're around 130,000 now, yeah, nice. um, Yeah, I think through 2020. I mean, one, we've been a bit more irregular with our content. Um, And two, I've noticed that we have like big peaks and troughs during holiday periods and things. I think we're a podcast. Lots of people are listening to on their commute to and from work. So when commute stopped existing, I think, you know, people probably listened a little less. But but we're doing, yeah, not too badly. And, you know, Mm. um, we've had a couple of pretty good episodes recently. So it's good.
0: I've definitely noticed the consistency thing
2: makes a difference in
0: how regular you'd like, obviously, cause you're releasing more content regularly, but even after a, like a bit of a drop off, if we then add a couple more episodes in quickly, it like it doesn't build back up again in the same way. No,
2: no, exactly. It's, it's gotta be a reasonably consistent thing. And it's also, I think when you're really focused on like, on building an audience, you want content that people are going to like share and resonates with them and stuff. So it's not enough to say like, Oh, we'll have to do a couple of filler episodes between, between like, guests you really need to be putting out like pretty consistent fire yeah yet, let's here be honest, we are
0: with will Berkman.
2: i was gonna say between me and alex there's <laughs> not really that much quality content to give.
0: So. <laughs> i was just like, in trouble i
1: was just snickering before like the irony of this this podcast being such a meme of three privileged white dudes talking <laughs> about how to run a podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, um, no. what what's the what's been your all-time uh, favorite podcast episode that you've recorded on weekly weights
2: um, that's a good question, actually. Um, we did one recently that was just mind blowing. Um, we spoke to Chris Kennedy. Um, I don't know if you listen to that one. He's a, he's a lifter from New Zealand. Um, he's I think he's
1: awesome story.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, that was it. So he basically just got on our podcast and told us his life story. And like, my mum has been listening to it and I was talking to her this morning and she was like, saying he should be a Four Corners episode, you know, because, like, just talking to him, I was staggered the whole way through. And I think, um, you know, when I talk to a lot of people about, like, training-related stuff, I like, I learn a bit and I pick up lots of really good ways of expressing ideas that are, like, just better ways of saying things I kind of already believe. But when you do, like, the human interest side of things like that, sometimes you just hear stuff that just staggers you and inspires you and things. And his story was just one of those ones where I was like, I can't believe, you know, somebody's had a life this amazing so that'd be right up there with me that's the first one that came to mind anyway yeah cool cool, cool. I don't know, what's your favorite episode of weekly lights thomas
1: um anything with robert wilkes really floats my boat <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like uh the, the one that i've probably listened to uh one of the few uh, podcasts on any podcast uh episodes on any podcast that i've listened to more than once um is your episode with lyle mcdonald and i refer people to that one a lot um it was yeah just brilliant i I thought it was excellent
2: yeah that was great i mean lyle's lyle you know like Mm. once you start him you don't stop him but um we we learned heaps from that and i've had a lot of other people say similar things to you like they just send people to that podcast all the time
1: yeah yeah awesome all right well we need to know more about uh will the person because uh i'm sure uh A lot of people in the powerlifting space know you, but uh, let's let's (laughs) learn a little bit more. Um, Can you tell us a little bit of your uh, your lifting history first, and then maybe your educational background and and coaching history as well?
2: Sure. Um, So I started lifting weights when I was pretty young. Um, Actually, you know what? I haven't divulged this publicly, so you guys get (laughs) exclusive, (laughs) exclusive,
0: exclusive.
2: Yes. So. People who are real Will Berkman enthusiasts will know that I was fat when fat I was- Fat Burke younger. is my favorite Burke, Because <laughs> yeah. so, Fat
0: Burke deeply resonates with 15-year-old John.
2: Yeah. So, here and there are pictures of fat me um, surface. And what actually happened was when I was like 12, 13, partly as a result of being fat and partly as a result of just like starting to grow because of puberty- um, I had pretty bad Osgood Schlats, and that's that's where your bones start growing faster than your connective tissues. You get joint pain and stuff. And I I was pretty serious about playing footy, but like my knees would hurt all the time. And so I actually started doing exercise at that time. I went and saw my mum had a personal trainer. His name was Shane um, at the local leisure centre, and I would go see him for half an hour once a week or once a fortnight, and he just put me through a little machine circuit and things. So I was thirteen. But then the other thing that I would do is I did Pilates classes at the age of thirteen, and so (laughs) so there was me, Um, there was me, like thirteen-year-old in my footy shorts doing Pilates classes with these middle-aged women. And I had no idea what was going on. Um, but I sort of just did it because mum said it'd be good for my knees and I figured it, it could only help with rugby, even though I couldn't figure out I'm in these contraptions with my, my legs back behind my head going. But I don't know how this fucking relates at all to scrummaging, but, but I'm here now. So so I was doing that. And, and anyway, that persisted for about a year. And um, then I had some time off. I think I realized my Pilates career had peaked. At time. <laughs> so, so that was my first Sharo's <laughs> yeah, lost it. Oh
0: man. Mostly cause I can empathize with and visualize myself at the same age, doing exactly the same fucking thing, but being like, fuck yeah, this is going to
2: help my footy. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was a pretty easy sell. Um, yeah, me too. but my parents always had this, um, this philosophy where like, if I showed enthusiasm towards something, they would facilitate me pursuing it until I didn't show that enthusiasm anymore. So if I wanted to read books, which I did, they would buy me books. But if I didn't read the books and I said, I wanted one, they'd say, sweet, do some jobs and go buy it yourself, you know? And so, so what ended up happening when I was 14 or 15 was I was really keen on getting better at footy. And I was realizing that like my physical development was um, was one of the key things that was going to turn me into either a good player or a bad player. And my mom said, "Okay, well, like I'm willing to get you some personal training sessions at that age." Um, and so, so she started paying me or paying for me to see her personal trainer. His name's Lewis McLean. Um, he ended up starting a gym in Sydney called The Cube. It's quite successful. He's now an exercise physiologist, and I started training with him at about the age of 14 or 15. And I was primarily training for footy, um, and I got reasonably strong. And at some stage in that process, I realised I just really liked it lifting weights. Um, and by the time I left school, you know, I could, I was, you know, deadlifting 230 beltless and squatting 180 high bar beltless and so on and benching like 60, but you know, like (laughs) whatever. Um, but you know, I was doing that and I, I really liked training at that stage about, about to the same degree that I liked rugby. Um, and then post school, I sort of, you know, kept playing footy recreationally. I dabbled in Olympic weightlifting um, you know, I went through the weight loss and left behind, um, fat Burke.
0: Ooh. And
2: after I ended up having knee surgeries in successive seasons and stopped playing rugby after that, cause it stopped being fun. And at that stage I was kind of craving a bit of a competitive outlet still because I was training, you know, because I liked lifting weights, but I found it really like deeply dissatisfying to just focus on how I looked. And even though going to the gym was still enjoyable, it, like it didn't really do much for my self-esteem to look in the mirror and sort of say like, you know, my delts could come up a little bit or something to cap off this physique. That just wasn't me. And, um, and I'd always liked squatting and deadlifting um, and I knew they were in powerlifting. And so I signed up for this competition really impulsively in, at the start of 2013. And, you know, I borrowed a weightlifting singlet from Lewis McLean, that first PT I ever had. Um, and I showed up and it was run by a guy called Scott Hill, who you guys might know. Yeah. Um, it was run by him and I showed up and he had to tell me which order the lifts happened in and like help me through the whole process. But as it happened, there was three people competing in the 83 kilo class that day. We were all first timers and I just happened to be the best first timer. So I won. Um, and I won with like a shit house total. It would have been like 465 kilos or something like it was pretty bad. Um, but because I had no reference point, I was like, well, I won, like I must be pretty good. So, <laughs> so on that basis, <laughs> I, I just leant into powerlifting cause I was like, this is fun. I get to lift weights, you know, and I'm, I'm good, good at it. Yeah, I know. I will just like 300, which yeah. is fucking sick. That's like more than Bradman got when he batted in cricket. So it must be good. <laughs> um, and so from there, I just like, You know, I kept powerlifting and at the time I was just writing my own programs and so on. And I ended up, um, at the end of that year, going to represent Australia at the Commonwealth Championships. And I had an absolute shit of a mate, um, completely embarrassed myself. I like, I got a total, but I think I went like five for nine, you know, had technical flubs where I didn't realize certain rules existed and like, you know, everything that could have gone wrong, did go wrong. And I was really,
1: how old were you then in, in 2013?
2: Uh, 21 Okay um, So in the juniors Yeah so in the juniors um, And Brett Gibbs was competing at that comp And I was like Fuck this Brett guy's alright um, <laughs> And he, <laughs> he still is um, And anyway So so that happened And I, I basically felt like I'd really um, I'd represented myself poorly Because I was like I trained better than I competed So that already sucks But also like I'm standing there with my country And blazoned across my chest You know With friends and stuff at home Watching me on the internet And I feel like a bit of a dickhead and given that I'm taking this seriously enough at this stage to like fly internationally to try and do it, I should probably get some coaching. Um, so at that point I started working with Amir Fazeli of Adonis Athletics. Um, and then to start sort of cutting things a bit shorter, i worked with Amir for a bit over three years, Learned lots, made a lot of improvements, had some injuries um, that sort of, you know, interfered with my career a bit. And at the time that I stopped training with Amir, I was going onto my placement for nutrition and dietetics, which was my master's degree. Um, and I basically didn't think I was going to be able to commit to a very regular training schedule. So I started self-coaching again. Um, ended up committing to a regular training schedule anyway, because that's just how I am. Um, made more gains, took a break from lifting for about, well, actually ended up being about 18 months because I went and did some traveling and then came back and just sort of fired us around a little bit and then have been competing semi-regularly ever since as a reasonably mediocre open lifter, but doing a lot of coaching as well. Um, so that's that.
1: Yes, yeah, sweet. So tell us about um, tell us about the the transition between. You've done your masters. You've become a dietitian. Uh, what made you? Did you ever end up practicing as a dietitian, or did you kind of get it and be like, you know what, I'm going to coach people?
2: Honestly, I by the time I was finished my masters, I was convinced I didn't want to be a dietitian, um, because I started nutrition and dietetics. I did sports science as my undergrad, mm-hmm. right? And I went. <laughs> I actually. My whole life, I've basically just been in denial of the fact that I liked being a PT because I went into sports science and I was like, "I'm going to do this degree because it's interesting, and I'll work in a gym, but I'll work on the desk because I don't want to be a PT." And what I'm going to do is tackle on some type of masters at the end of sports science because sports science isn't sufficient for me to get a job that I want to do, or at least that's how I felt.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyway,
2: loved the degree, learned heaps, it was great. <laughs> um, and then I got, I was midway through my first year, and I thought, well. I should either do physio or nutrition and I was really interested in both but I figured I was more academically interested in nutrition so I signed up for the dietetics program went through got into the nutrition and dietetics program and pretty much immediately was like actually the things I'm learning here are not that enjoyable to me or that interesting to me um the nutrition and dietetics program at least the one that I did is very very focused on you know, both nutrition in like a clinical setting. So working with people who are in hospitals or who have chronic diseases and things and nutrition for general public health, which is mm-hmm. great. But I was very interested in nutrition from like a mechanistic standpoint and from like a sports nutrition perspective. And that's covered not at all, basically mm-hmm. in the masters. So I was going through it sort of being like, well, this isn't adding a whole lot to my life. And also in my cohort, there was 66 people, four of them were boys and like, two of those four boys were foreign students. And so I felt like pretty much a man alone the whole time. So I was kind of like, I feel a bit lonely and I'm not really loving the subject matter. So I was already a bit off it. Mm. And then when I went on placement, working in hospitals and things, I was like, well, I'm definitely off this because (laughs) as much as like, I learned a lot doing it, it didn't really speak to my heart. Mm. So I got to the end of my master's and I was like, well, shit, you know, I don't know what I want to do because I don't want to do that. Um, and I had already plans to go traveling for a few months after I finished uni, but at the time my plan was go traveling for a few months and then come back and maybe try and get a job in nutrition. And what it ended up being was I was like, I'm going to go traveling and hopefully while I'm there, I'll have a bolt of inspiration. Otherwise I'm going to come back and just like try and walk into a bank on the bottom floor and get a job and see what happens. And while I was overseas, I like when sort of all the environmental drivers of my behavior were stripped away. I I kept like regressing towards exercise stuff. Like I wrote an article when I was in a hammock in Tulum in Mexico um, that I sent to Luke Tulloch who published it for me. Um, I was having, I was like reading scientific papers while I was on buses and shit, just because I was interested. I had a couple of people contact me about like, about doing some mentorship and having PTs and things while I was overseas, um, having PTs, like personal training and stuff while I was overseas. Yep. And and when I was coming back to Sydney, I was contacted by a couple of people with work opportunities. And I was like, at that stage, I sort of went, well, given that all my interest appears to be in this field, no matter how much I deny it. And I keep getting opportunities in this field. Cause I've got i I've got some aptitude for it. I should probably just lean into it and give it a go and see how it is. And that was a f- what three and a bit years ago now. And you know, here I am loving it and doing reasonably well. So so it was never really a conscious decision. It was almost like avoidance of all the other things that I knew didn't work <laughs> yeah. while it was still there. You know.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting hearing your your journey with the with the formal education with the dietetics, especially. So, um, I don't know if I I don't know if you know this. After I finished my degree in nutrition, did my honors, uh, I sat on the. I did guest lecturing and I sat on the curriculum and advisory panel for a couple of years as like a student rep or a a new grad rep uh, while I was working for the government. And then a little bit later on as well. And I I can't, I, I can't begin to describe how many people I talk out of doing the degree because they're like, I'm so interested in nutrition and sports performance. I'm like, that's great. Here's what you're going to learn in the nutrition degree, a shitload of chemistry, a shitload of biochemistry, a shitload of like medical physiology. So you understand how to use nutrition to deal with chronic diseases. Are you excited about that? No. Well, then you're going to have to wait till you finish and then go upskill with the sports dietetics. Once you're a qualified dietitian, it's like Mm. you're not going to go through and come out like ready to write people's macros. It's not what the course is for because the majority of people in Australia don't need that and don't want that. It's so interesting. Um, how much of your, uh, your formal education, in the space of exercise science, have you been able to realistically translate into your practice now? Like excluding say the attributes of like learning how to study, learning how to critically analyze the, uh, the research and the data, how much of what you actually learned has application to how you practice as a, as a coach now?
2: That's a really good question. I'm going to answer a different one. Um, (laughs) Please do.
1: (laughs) So, Like any good podcast host host would.
2: (laughs) Yeah. No, I actually, you know, I dissed on my dietetics degree a decent amount um, because like, you know, I didn't love it. There was lots I liked about it, but the degree itself wasn't it. Um, But a lot of the soft skills of dietetics are actually really, really important coaching skills. Mm-hmm. Um, in nutrition and dietetics, you learn all these assessment skills And you start learning to ask questions But also start modifying your questions On the basis of the answers you get So that you actually get the information that you want And you also learn about a lot about like Communicating information to people On the level of the person you're talking to mm-hmm. You know, like In hospitals, sometimes you're talking to somebody Where it's like, you want to reduce their saturated fat intake And you say, like, what do you eat? And they say, I eat sausages at breakfast Leftover sausages at lunch And sausages at dinner you know, and when you're talking to that person, you, you like you don't go into a complicated nutritional explanation. You start talking about food sub- substitutions that they would like, and you literally just say this is better, or you know that's worse, or whatever it happens to be, until you come to a solution that they enjoy. Mm. Whereas when you talk to somebody who has a reasonable degree of education, you can start talking about the hows and whys and start breeding confidence in your interventions on that basis. Mm. And there's something very analogous to coaching about that. And there's also in a in dietetics they they really coach us towards motivational interviewing which is essentially asking questions of people so that they start coming to their own solutions and start you know describing the interventions that they want to engage in themselves and you use your knowledge to guide that question asking process and so on but you end up like empowering people a lot because they start realizing that like one they do have the capacity to take action on their own behalf and two the actions that they take and ones that they believe will help them And again, that's something that's really applicable to coaching. So as much as I, like I said, didn't love the dietetics degree, those skills have helped me hugely. Mm. Um, In sports science, there's a lot of things that I learned that I wouldn't say that I directly apply, um, but have still kind of helped me reconcile the practical knowledge that I have. And, you know, little things that we learn about like energy systems and fatigability, some stuff about like muscle physiology and, you know, how, yeah, how energy systems work or how like muscle damage works and how we recover from it and things like that. You know, we don't really use that in application. When we write training, like we're working in an applied field, we say we do X, do we get the outcomes we want? Yes or no, what changes ought we make. But having a little bit of that mechanistic knowledge in your head can kind of help you make better inferences. So I think that that helped, um, you know, obviously doing some anatomy helped the biomechanics stuff that we learned was simplistic, but extremely helpful as well. I think like as much as we make fun of sort of like ball and stick models of biomechanics, cause they're not really complex enough to actually describe things in reality. They're still a simple enough scheme for us to use to sort of start looking at joints and things and saying, you know, what's carrying the load in this lift or what's not wanting to carry the load in this lift. And, and so on and so you can use like simplicity to give you to give you like easier decisions to make in an otherwise very very complex system and then again because it's an applied field you you know you make your assessments you make your interventions and you assess them so there's a lot of stuff that i would say helps me but none of it would have been sufficient without practical knowledge of training and practical experience but plenty of it was certainly very helpful
0: I think that um that idea of like a simplistic model for be it biomechanics or nutrition or whatever it is, it almost is it like a fundamental understanding that a lot of people who get into PT through the internet rather than through some uh, you know endeavor in more formal education end up missing the piece. And like Thomas and I were talking to uh Pat last week and uh thomas mentioned like people not having got the information from the first-hand source but like a third-hand source and already misinterpreting it because they don't have that foundational knowledge so it's almost like that lays a very successful foundation to them be like all right cool now i can actually learn how to do things rather than just understand how it kind of works Mm. yeah absolutely
1: and it's it's why i'm always going to have the back of formal education as well to some degree um you know what you were saying about like while you might not have to engage with a client around the direct mechanisms of muscle breakdown, fatigue, and recovery, uh, you having that knowledge helps you make those informed decisions. Just like in nutrition, you don't have to talk to someone about what the fucking Krebs cycle is. Uh, but you having that fundamental biochemical knowledge is going to help you, you know, understand what's going on and then, you know, feed up the chain until, until you get to that practical level of knowledge and application. Mm. Um, all right. Well, one thing uh, I think we've spoken about it uh, privately before, like way in the past, and you made a post about it yesterday. Um, is this uh, is this notion around like variation specificity? Uh, and I like, I really like the post you made about it, which I'm going to bring up. Uh, but if you, can we need a Jamie. Jamie, pull that up. If you can just summarize it off the top of your head, variation can be specificity in disguise. I like that concept. Uh, can yeah. you tell the people
2: what you were getting at? So firstly, I know that we spoke about it in person. And the reason I know is I actually wrote an article that's on my website um, called Specificity to Task is Not Always Specificity to Sport. And the very start of it says, I was prompted to write this article because of a discussion I was having with Thomas Lilly. <laughs> and then I think in there, you, I don't know, did it ever come out for sure who Frustrated Strength Coach was in public? Yeah, it was Thomas. No, it's yeah. not me. Uh, okay. I don't. I don't so think it's still going it. out
1: in in public. I can tell you after the show who it is. Right.
2: Well. Thomas. Okay. Pl- yeah. Please do tell me after the show. But I think I fed into that speculation as well in that article. So I was like, who may or may not be frustrated as strength coach, which was funny. Um, but I. But yeah, I did write that article then because it's something I've been tossing around in my head. So, so that post is is the infographic that I created for a slideshow um, talking about specificity and variation. Um, with a little written blur beneath it. And basically what I was getting at when I said that variation can be specificity in disguise is that we, when we write exercise programs, you know, we're led to think that like, say we'll use power thing as an example, that the most specific training has the most transfer, which is broadly speaking true. You know, if you wanted to get really good in the immediate term at squatting dead, like benching and deadlifting, you know, one RM loads or close to, then you would do one RM loads or close to under competition conditions. And you would probably get more transfer from that than pretty much any regression from them. So that makes some sense. Um, but that doesn't mean that all of our training necessarily has to, has to be Im- like immediately specific to the sporting task. And instead, what we should be doing is writing with, writing programs with what I sort of call like an adaptations first perspective, which is where we say like, what changes are we looking to induce in this athlete with the current training? And where will deviations from that surface level specificity, that, that immediate resemblance to the sport, help us more elegantly write our programs? And the good thing about powerlifting is that our competition actually really, really resembles what we do in the gym in a lot of ways. So we often don't really have to go very far from surface level specificity to get a lot of the adaptations that we want, but we shouldn't be afraid of doing it where doing so does help us more elegantly write programs. And one of the easiest ways to conceptualize it um, is when we think about the training that like anybody who plays a field sport or something does, you know, if you're a rugby player, um, you need to obviously have like rugby technical and tactical skills. So you've got to be able to pass a ball. You've got to know where on the field, you've got to be all that stuff, but you also need to be strong. And you need to have some level of aerobic fitness and also some level of like you know, anaerobic conditioning above that because there's sprinting and things interspersed in your sport. And so rugby players don't develop all of those qualities by just playing rugby matches 24 seven. Instead, they, they have some training that is dedicated towards energy systems. They have some training that's dedicated towards you know, developing strength. And they, they also don't develop all of their technical and tactical skills by just playing the game Instead, they, you know, segment things and they do drills and they do all of that stuff. And it's kind of presumed in that field that doing that is going to allow them to more elegantly target their training and get a better outcome. And to a large degree, it's true because there is still a bedrock of people playing footy that makes them better. Um, But in powerlifting, we sometimes seem to be a little bit afraid to make those changes. So that was, that's like the broad thesis. And then... Within that post, um, again, it would be easier if you guys had a jamie and we had it on screen. But within that post, I sort of I broke it into a few little elements, and what I had over the top was an arrow that sort of pointed from left to right, and at the very right hand said um, right hand side, sorry, it sort of said like overall program th- thrust. So like at the end of this process, we want to be better at powerlifting than at the start of the process, right? But within that we can we can sort of segment our training and say, well, let's develop some developmental periods. Or oh, sorry, let's let's what's the word that starts with D? Doesn't even start with D. What's the word for yeah. devote? Here we go. Let's devote oh. some developmental periods. That was smooth. Thank you. Um I'm very <laughs> tired, guys. I had a shocking night's sleep last night, let me tell you. I was just I was up with my thoughts and that's always a sad time. So <laughs> let's Let's devote some developmental periods to to specific attributes that we're wanting to develop. And, you know, like there's all the arguments about phase potentiation and periodization and how much of that is necessary. But certainly we can say within each little training block, we want to have short-term goals as well. So our long-term goal is get better at powerlifting. But, you know, saying your short-term goal is to grow your quads a bit more so you can squat better training that is most elegant for growing your quads is not necessarily going to be the same as the training that peaks your squat best, mm. you know, and by the same token, if your goal was to have an active rest phase and, you know, restore some movement capacities because your body feels like shit straight after, straight after a competition, the best way to do that is probably not to do your competition training again. It's to, it's to choose the things that will help you do that. And all of that is captured in this idea that we have a process in our training that takes us towards a specific end point. Mm-hmm. So being willing to make variations on a block by block basis or uh, you know cycle by cycle basis or whatever in order to meet those shortest term goals can help sum up to a specific endpoint and then within that there was the third layer which is to say that even within blocks that are chasing specific short term goals some variation in how we prescribe things can still help get you better outcomes and so You know, in a peak, not all of our training needs to be maximally heavy, you know, close to one RM singles in the powerlifts. We might still have a tiny bit of work that's devoted to, you know, movement quality or keeping us feeling healthy. We might have some lighter training to help recover and potentiate those better sessions. And all of that is a deviation from specificity as well. And sometimes because people's, you know, shoulders get beaten up or something low by squatting, we even choose to implement variations there purely on the basis that they facilitate us doing the work that we need to do to get our specific goal there, you know? So on all those levels, we make some accommodations for variation so that our training can be better and it still serves a specific overall purpose. So we don't need to be too up our butts about always doing exactly the power all the time. Mm.
1: Yeah, so I, I guess what you're saying is that by me telling all my clients, no, this block, we're going to do straight barbell curls instead of easy body, easy bar curls to keep the body guessing that I've been doing the right thing all along.
2: Firstly, just say, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> There's no secondly. <laughs> that, that was it. Yeah.
1: So in, in your opinion, you know, watching this, having these thoughts in your head and, and watching, uh, you know, we all watch each other uh, prescribe things and, and train and everything like that. Where do you see people going wrong with this?
2: Um, where do I see people going? Look, I think that I think that the thought that the best training to develop the powerlifts is the powerlifts is in and of itself not actually a bad thought. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, most of the time, it's a really, really good answer to just say, "Well, if I want to get better at these things, I should do these things." Mm. Um, but I think a failure to appreciate that we do have that we do have sort of finite goals and that it's the totality of our program that advances us towards them at a given time can lead you to make bad programming decisions mm. so so i'll use myself as an example earlier in my coaching career during peaks i was like training must be hyper specific um any deviation from stuff that resembles the powerlifts, and any use of a main lift variation that wasn't the competition lifts is probably a dilution of transfer of training and a bad use of time. I didn't get better peaking outcomes from doing that with pretty much anybody than I do now, where I still have that thought on my main loading days, but I don't necessarily have that thought on my others. So I didn't have that. I did have more people who came into competitions a little bit more beaten up. And I think that represented a misunderstanding of my training or like of my training writing process, that's number one. And then number two is, you know, on the flip side in off seasons, I think here and there you get lifters who are either physically getting a little bit more beaten up than is probably necessary or getting a little bit more burnt out than is necessary due to a lack of novelty, because we're too concerned with preserving what we see as like some surface level specificity and immediate transfer in, you know, the squats that we prescribe that we don't just give them a break. Um, So I think that's number one. And number two, this is a little bit harder to describe. It's why I'm kind of umming and ahhing. Number two is that there's this kind of like pervasive thought among a lot of powerlifting coaches that because say the powerlifts are comprised of a, of a reasonably limited number of movement capacities that we should only really train those capacities because they're the only important ones. Um, And I just don't think that that's true either. I think that a a, a good example, you know, we think of like external rotation and extension of the hip are both things that we tend to exhibit at some stage, at least in the squat and the deadlift. They're pretty important movement capacities and they're things that the glute does. But in order to actually access either of them, we still actually need to have some internal rotation and flexion of the hip and so on. And so when we, When we devote all of our training to things that has a surface level resemblance to our highest output tasks, which is the power lifts, and we fail to incorporate some targeted variety in the movements that we do to sort of keep the movement capacities there. So to, you know, restore the reciprocal motions, we have lifters who are less healthy and whose quality of movement goes down and we probably decrease the trainability of those things as well. So again, willing to say, Hey, I've got enough of this stuff because I'm already doing some hard powerlifting. Let's do some other stuff to keep our athletes healthy and happy. It can only be a net positive. And then obviously as you get closer and closer to competition, the room for that stuff goes away. So you drop it anyway, but that's not to say that in off seasons doing some stuff that is non-specific immediately doesn't have some benefit. I hope I expressed that kind of well enough to make sense.
0: Yeah, I definitely think you did. And I think it's something that a lot of athletes, like it's a conversation I've had a lot with people who've been around for longer than the sort of six-month, one-year period where like Mm. we could probably get away with pushing really, really hard and relatively specific and hammering two or three comps in a one-year period. But then beyond that, it's probably not a bad idea for you physically to have something that's going to restore some of that. And some of them find it really hard to wrap their heads around as a as a concept because it it seems so counterintuitive on the surface level but when you explain it on a more deep understanding um i think it's much more obvious at least to me Mm. yeah for sure
1: one one interesting trend i'm finding and i seem to be talking to people about this a lot lately as well is like as as rpe based programming has kind of uh, i guess infiltrated the landscape a little bit more and there's probably (laughs) less experienced Practitioners, practitioners, now, you know, delivering RPE style program. There's a lot of programs that, you know, uh, centralize around having a top set every week, whether it's a top single double triple, but it's te- typically a high intensity, uh, low rep set. Um, it starts to breed the idea into people's heads of like, this is doing me some good in terms of driving strength adaptations. Uh, and when you kind of strip back their programming and see, okay, well, well, you've used that, your coach has used that top set to determine the volume work that you're doing underneath. And that volume work is probably the thing that's actually making the change. Would your program just be as successful without that? But then it sort of starts to breed into that person. I need that. As in like, now you'll get a lot of clients come to you being like, oh, previously I was doing this one top set. And as soon as I took that away, I, I rapidly went downhill. So I need to have this top single every week. And it's like, oh, fuck you know, like we're, we're teaching, or there's a lot of uh, stuff happening. That's teaching people, uh, to almost be hyper-specific and it's not, it's not a new problem. It's just kind of like a problem that's now expressed differently before it was like, let's all fucking do Shaco where we do squat bench, deadlift rows,
0: lunges, and that's about it. You know? (laughs) And name our, num- our programs by numbers.
2: <laughs> yeah. 37,
0: 37, 28 or whatever it was.
2: I mean, this is a tangent because I actually had something to say in response to Thomas, but apparently all those numbers refer to different athletes as well. Yeah, yeah. So you know, when people too. are like, yeah, you got to go thirty seven, thirty two, and then whatever it was, 41 or something to peak. It's like, dude, you're doing programs for three different athletes. <laughs> yeah. but you're, just like, you're just randomly putting them together. Um, yeah. Thomas, I think what you had to say there, um, is kind of spot on. But I also think that with that top set stuff, it's, it can kind of be both. Um, I do think that, I do think that where you are concerned with the preservation of top end strength, you probably don't need a whole lot of volume in that, in that loading zone to Mm -hmm. do a pretty good, good job of preserving it. And I think like for prescriptive purposes, it might be useful to have some exposure there. And there might be something useful to sort of normalizing loads that are close to opener ish for a lot of people.
1: And for disclosure, I use that style programming with plenty of people too.
2: Yeah. And well, so do I, Um, but I, you know, I also hear you loud and clear as like, you know, is it the top set or is it your program in total that's getting you better? And almost invariably it's the program in total. It's just the top sets, the bit that you're going to share on your Instagram or, you know, (laughs) the top sets, the bit that spits out your estimated one RM number. And like, You know, I, I have actually had some athletes where I've had a static top set as in fixed load, not even RPE based static top set for four to six weeks at a time with back off work underneath it where they've gotten staggeringly better as well, Mm. you know, and, and you can still see that they're getting better because if they touch the same load and it moves faster and faster and faster, like you just kind of know, um, And so I think like a preoccupation with a very small part of your program because it's again the one that you think resembles your competition stuff the most might not always yield you the best returns when your developmental goals are something else. And so occasionally withdrawing the top set might not actually be necessarily better on paper. Like it doesn't have any prescriptive value over including the top set and doing the rest of your training. But if it takes your focus away from that a little bit and lets you just say, okay, I'm just going to go do my sixes or whatever it happens to be, or, you know, like I don't need to do a, a top single on my high bar to still get some benefit from training my high bar squat if I'm just training for general strength or whatever. Like, you know, whatever it happens to be. If dropping that top set lets you just get the focus on doing the work done mm. or getting the work done that is actually getting you benefit done, then sick, drop the top set as well. It's, you know, at this, like at that point, it's literally, it's, you know, six and one half a dozen the other way. Prescription wise, it's picking the one that is actually best suited to your immediate needs.
1: Yeah. Hundred percent, I like it. Yeah, no, yeah, no, it's um, it's always interesting with the with the top set stuff because there is so much uh, cool. benefit outside of. Okay, is this making me stronger? Is this better for powerlifting? It's like, what's what's your emotional connection to that weight, or how do you feel about that weight, or um, you know, is it uh, fostering better practice, better you know, movement patterns under a heavy? Like, there's a lot of fringe benefits outside of this is making me stronger or not. And I guess what I was trying to say is exactly what you summarized with there, which is like the the value put onto that as being the key driver of progress is sometimes uh, conflated. And uh, like, I don't care about it from a coaching standpoint because I, I know how this shit works. Works, you know how the shit works. Sharon knows how this shit works. What scares me is like people doing that and then being like, I'm going to program myself because this works for me, and then doing like shitloads of top sets and not understanding what was actually driving their progress, and then just getting really good at failing 190, you know, yeah. or really good at failing in a particular way.
0: And that's yeah. the, for oh, me, God. I like, I actually use my top sets almost exclusively for all of those fringe benefits you mentioned, like Hmm. improved skill, uh, like transfer confidence under weights, like actual technical practice at higher intensities in that sort of comp zone. And they obviously become more important, at least in my framework, the closer we get to competition. Uh, but, explaining that to people and then being like, like this is why it's not actually like a three rep max every time or a four rep max. It's like a very defined, this is the window that I want you to be working in uh, can be really beneficial so that they can at least get past the idea that I need this to be able to get stronger every week.
2: So here is a gripe that I have with RPE based programming. And to be fair, it's not actually a gripe with RPE based programming. It's a gripe with how people use it, Mm. which is, to get some of those fringe benefits you just described, sometimes you don't even need to put into the upper zone that people think yeah. is productive. You know, so like you don't have to do a double at seven to get those benefits. Like if I went in tomorrow and did a top squat at two twenty for one, I would probably get some of the benefits you just described there. And like I did two twenty for a three by six not long ago. So like we're talking a very easy set, but I would still get some of those benefits. And I think that lots of people who use, it's not even that they're using it injudiciously. It's just like you get railroaded towards things always actually being within a certain intensity bracket sometimes when you're afraid to just have a prescribed load. Um, And so one of the, one of the nice things about being willing to blend prescriptive methods or at least putting boundaries around how are you going to assess your IPAs or something is that you can do so in a goal-directed manner. And so the people who are really intelligent with auto-regulated training they use auto auto regulation to like actually facilitate them doing things that sit within these slightly longer term plans. They say, what's the direction I want to take with this? You know, what am I expecting to feel today? You know, and how am I expecting this to move? And then they do that. Hmm. And, you know, obviously there's an RPA and things assigned to that because we need some language with which to frame the training prescription, but it's done with a little bit more forethought than just being like, you know, I'm going to lift heavy to lift heavy. Like that's not it at all.
0: Mm. Cool man. Well, that's uh, almost the sorry, I was just gonna say that's almost yeah. the skills practice bit that you get playing footy like that's the, mm. the the drills concept that doesn't exist in our sport or at least seems not to exist in the same way as it does in team sport because of that idea that all of the specificity happens in the four walls of the gym. Mm.
1: All right, well, in the interest of time because I know you got to shoot off, John. Uh, yeah we got to ask you some questions well.
2: Yeah, dog. yeah,
1: I think before we ask the questions, we'll do the, where can we find you thing, So people get exposed to that before they just listen to the question and we'll be like, okay, we're done. Uh, so where, where can people find you Will?
2: um, so on Instagram I'm at w That's usually the easiest place to talk to me if you just want to have a chat. Um, I do have a website. It's will Berkman.com. There's blogs and so on there, and you can make training inquiries and things directly through the website. Or you can email me. The email is will at willberkman.com. So any of them will do just fine.
1: Mm-hmm. And tell them about your alter ego, please.
2: I'm going to give you guys an exclusive scoop because <laughs> the another second exclusive.
0: exclusive scoop.
1: Well, when's
2: wow. this going out-ish?
1: Uh, Monday. Monday? Oh, shit. Or the following Monday?
2: Well, if it's Monday, then this is going to be a two-day lead-in because... Uh...
1: Yeah, following Monday? following Monday Monday. Yeah, we record, yeah, yeah sweet
2: So obviously I'm Will Berkman um, th- I do have an alter ego Who has done a couple of takeovers On my Instagram account recently His name is Bill Workman um, Bill's terrible on podcasts Because he's actually non-verbal um, But he, he wears his power <laughs> um, And these belt in wrist wraps And a pair of reflective sunnies And, you know, answers your QA in them But next week Provided that my propeller hat arrives on Sunday, which it's meant to, Mill Norkman is gonna, is gonna help me out on my page. And Mill Norkman has blue light blocking glasses, um, and he has a propeller hat. And mm-hmm. soon he'll have a NASA t shirt, but that's not going to be here for another week or so. Um, and so, Mill is a little bit more on the evidence based end of the sphere, but he's, he's kind of like evidence based to the point that he tries to think his way out of doing hard training. Like so it. yeah, so we got Mil Norkman probably helping me out with Q and A in the very near term, um, but Bill Workman made make a return. Shero's just done. He's uh, he's send it. Uh, I'll tell you guys off air. I'm not willing to divulge this one publicly. I'll tell you guys off air what's coming reasonably soon. But yeah. but Mill Norkman joins That's the right. Will Workman cinematic universe next week. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Cinematic. okay excellent well you would think like you I'm and busy.
2: like yeah. that's the weird thing is people think that i have so much time on my hands i'm actually kind of busy and i'm still walking around my apartment in my full powerlifting outfit putting my camera in the most obscure place i can so that i can just film these stupid stories i don't know what's gotten into me yeah. anyway, call, call nice. it marketing yeah. yeah, tax
1: deduction on the on the propeller hat and the nasa Oh, shirt. i
2: no shit that was a business expense
1: <laughs> perfect perfect Excellent. all right well we
0: asked four questions to every guest were, were you going to say something first john i was just going to say are we going to give will the full six or are we just going to are we going to make that a pat davidson exclusive i thought that was pat
1: exclusive you okay. can if you want it's yeah you're the one well, on the I time just, limit
0: i think they're good questions all right um hit it would say I've forgotten the first four of them. Favorite lifting memory that we normally, uh, for coaches, like a, like, what's your favorite lifting memory and then your co- favorite coaching
2: related lifting memory? So my two actually relate to the same guy. Um, so my favorite lifting memory was my first coach, I'm um, sorry, first competition that I did under Amir's coaching um, was again run by Scott Hill. And I was competing with my friend, Tim Davies, who, um, who had competed with me in New Zealand. Um, we, we were both really similar standard lifters at the time. And I had squatted a PB, um, at, there was 200 kilos, and I'd gone one for three on bench. I just had an absolute shocker. Tech flub, miss on strength, like just everything you could do wrong. And so even though I should have been ahead of Tim, I ended up behind by about, I want to say seven and a half on subtotal and going into deadlifts um, I was pulling a little bit heavier than him and I made my first two deadlifts and then he made his third and my best deadlift at the time was 230 kilos still and I think I had deadlifted 230 for my second attempt and he deadlifted he made 240 on his third and he made it at like RPE 10.3 and so Amir and like you guys know Amir um he was kind of walking around doing his intense thing that he does trying to figure out what to do. And he was doing calculations on his phone based on my top sets in training. he came up to me and he said like, we should put on 247. I think you can do it. And I was like, whatever, like I trust you. It'll be fun. Put it on. So put on 247 and I've got footage of it somewhere. It was pretty shit technically, but like Yolo pulled this 17 kilo PB to beat Tim. Um, I was really happy to beat Tim. Uh, Like I felt kind of spiteful doing it, but I was so happy that he didn't beat me. Um, But it was a 17 and a half kilo PB pull for the win. That was really exciting. And that was probably the first time where I'd really experienced powerlifting as a competition. You know, I've had a couple of moments since, but that one was really dear to my heart because of just the magnitude of the PB and the fact that it was, you know, against a friend who, you know, I like and respect and have for a long time. So that was cool. Then my favorite coaching moment also involves Tim because a couple of years later, we represented Australia at Uzbekistan um, in the Asia-Oceania Championships. And really, this story deserves like 15 minutes. But essentially, I was coaching Tim and he, he had nominated a number of lifting goals and a number of goals in terms of his placing and his total and things that he wanted to achieve. And in spite of him having a day that fell a little bit short of his expectations, he had secured the gold for his squat in the junior 93 kilo division. Um, he had locked up by the time he'd done his second deadlift. He had silver locked in for his weight class and he had the deadlift gold locked in. But the guy who was sitting ahead of him was an absolute bench monster. And Tim had wanted to deadlift two seventy, I believe, um, which would have been a PB. Um, He had wanted to deadlift 270 prior to the comp, but he was just not having the strongest day and he was really down in the dumps mentally. And he pulled, I think, a 250 kilo second attempt that had moved pretty badly. Like he had 257 in him. And and like I said, he'd secured silver. And I sort of said to him straight after it, look, man, like you're going to need 272 to be ahead of this guy if he... Misses his third attempt. I think we should put it in. And Tim kind of went no, no, no. like let's just put in two sixty because two sixty is gonna get me, um, get me a total PB or something. And I sort of said, look, like we've achieved every other goal you set, other than gold in the gold in the weight class. Um, it's your comp if you want to do that. Like I, you know, I'll spoil you all the way. Let's put that in. So I put in um, two sixty or whatever. And then he came back about ten minutes later. Not like it was a slow comp, not 10 minutes, maybe five minutes later. Comes back and he says, actually, I want to go for 265 because that'll get me some milestone total number like 600 or something like whatever. And at that stage, I was like, you know, I think he's got 257. So he's going to miss 260 probably. And he's definitely going to miss 265. So he's going to feel bad about himself if he does that. But who am I to talk him down? So I said, all right, you know what? At the last minute, I'll go put the change in so you get a bit of extra rest. We can go for 265, but I really think you should go for the gold. And anyway, he's completely against it. Like I've never seen a dude more negative. And I walk out into the crowd and at this stage, pretty much everybody else in the juniors had competed. And so my friend Doug Goff was there and JP Kalki was there. And they'd been drinking these Uzbeki long necks, um, which were like 10 cents and they were pretty heinous, but they were pretty drunk. And they both had one in each hand i walked out and JP says to me, like, why is he going for 260?" And I said, Oh, it's for a total PB and JP is a drunk Patriot. And he's like, you know, that's bullshit. Like, you know, he's going to go for the win and blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, like I agree. And he was like, no, it's fucked. Like you don't do things for yourself here. You do things for your country. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I agree, but I'm not going to make him do it if he doesn't want to do it. Cause he just won't try. Um, I'm actually gonna put the change in and let him go for 265 for a 600 kilo total or whatever. And JP was livid. He goes, he's like, fuck that. He stands up, he's sloshing beer. So him and Doug run out the back, right? And at this stage, the lifter before Tim is just about to go out. And John Paul Kauke, who is about five foot three, has picked up Tim Davies, who's about six foot two. And he's holding him against this window in Uzbekistan and shaking him by the belt and screaming at him that like, you know, don't be fucking selfish and you're here for yourself. And Doug Goff is completely non-verbal at the time. He's just sloshing beer on Tim and yelling at him too, right? And Alex Hayes and I who were handling him were just like having a whale of a time laughing. And Tim just, a change came over him that I've never seen on another human in his life. He goes like, put it in. I said, put what in? He goes, put in 272, I'll do it. I said, great. So I walk out to put in 272 as the lifter who was in first pulled another 12 kilos more than his second. (laughs) So suddenly it's 285. And I just didn't tell Tim. I was just like, I just just put in 285, right? And bear in mind, Tim had pulled 250 on his second attempt. He he was going to get 257 maybe, but missed 260. I put in 285 kilos, right? (laughs) Which is like not for a second likely. So I walk out the back and I say, all right, it's 285, right? And I've, like, again, the belief that he had in himself at that moment and the determination he had to pull it was so palpable, right, that he starts walking out there onto the platform and everybody in the building thought he was going to do it. The Aussies are going like, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. And they're all pretty drunk and rowdy. And they're, they're, like, bringing the roof down, right? And this was Becky Lifter who was in first, is standing there with his coach and he was proper white knuckling the coach by the arm, like squeezing him because he was so fucking frightened that this guy's going <laughs> to pull five kilos more than his second attempt, right? And so, you know, Alex and I are screaming at Tim and Tim's like, ah! approaching the bar and he goes down, he sets up and like the atmosphere was electric and he went to pull it and he didn't even get the slam out of the bar. <laughs> like <laughs> like it, it just didn't go anywhere. But for just one second, I like, believed. Hundreds of people believed, right? <laughs> and after that, no shit. We had people queuing up to take photos with him, <laughs> wanted him to sign stuff, right? There were these like it was Becky schoolgirls who were legit lining up for photos with Tim Davies nice. after because it was just so legendary. And in my life, like every single person who was there still talks about two eighty five. <laughs> Like, so good. like, all you have to do is say 285 and everybody melts. It was, it, honest to God, the best experience I've had in powerlifting, even if you didn't make the lift. It was so good. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, I have
0: to run, but yeah, Thomas, you, you can I'll do the, ask the rest of the questions. Thank <laughs> Sorry, you. Really share was, no, that's all no, right. That, you, was, that was a great story. That was worth staying for. I will see you guys soon. Peace, see you, man. All right, Finally. Thomas. Finally. Now now the real podcast yeah, can I begin. I was going to say
1: um the next question is if you could have a uh, dinner with anyone and pick their brains they have to be alive right now who would it be
2: oh uh, so that's a subtle twist because on weekly weights which was started before this podcast we do dead or alive yes true um <laughs> who who uh, you know who like because you made the reference earlier who i'd actually love to have a chat with is joe rogan um oh, really Yeah, and, like, it's funny. I was the most anti-Joe Rogan guy, and, like, I don't agree with him about a lot of stuff, but he seems, like, so much fun for a chat. Yeah. And the reason why I'd like to pick his brain is because he seems to – he's got a huge amount of trivia in his brain about really obscure stuff. Yeah. And I just think that's always fun for a chat. And, like, I know he's really into, like, conspiracy theories and aliens (laughs) and stuff like that where I don't actually care about the facts. Like, I just want to know what people think and get told some wild stories. I feel like if I sat down with that dude, I'd have a really good fun chat. He'd be a good guy to talk to. And also, like, the life he lives is really interesting, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I'm the same. I, I only really recently got into into Rogan stuff. And I, I don't listen to a I don't I don't I don't have an interest in uh, fighting and MMA and combat sports. So I don't listen to any of those. But I, I like the science ones. And I like the conspiracy ones. And I like a few of the weird ones. Um, but you're exactly right. He's just got a head full of random trivia. And he seems to recall all these like random people in episodes and just knows a lot of stuff or at least... Yeah. Uh, is confident in talking about a lot of
2: stuff. I was going to say, my concern is, as somebody who knows about training and nutrition, some of the things he says about training and nutrition, I'm like, that's egregiously wrong. So it's very possible that the other things he says about things I don't know about are very wrong. But I don't care, man. No, who cares? Yeah, whatever.
1: He loves bringing up vitamins. Um, All right, (laughs) next question. Uh, What's something that you used to strongly, strongly, strongly believe uh, in the context of coaching you would have fallen on your sword for uh, that you have since changed your mind on?
2: Oh, this, this is super easy. I used to literally say this and it makes me cringe is like, I'm here for information, not motivation or information, <laughs> not inspiration. I used to say it all the time because one of the, one of the things that really pushed me away from dietetics was like the degree to which it's a counseling role.
1: Mm, you know, yeah.
2: I just, I found it really difficult to sit there and just say like, it's okay to people. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> um, but more and more um, I've realized that a large part of coaching is not at all to do with information. And it's not, it's not necessarily to do with inspiration, but it's certainly to do with support and helping people find motivation and self-management skills. Mm. And if I were to describe any big change to the way in which I've conducted my coaching service in the last year, it's been really emphasizing trying to develop those skills in my lifters. The way I've structured my feedback has changed. The language I use has changed. Everything about it has changed to try and develop that and and so while I would not I would still say I'm better at information than I am at inspiration, mm. I absolutely don't believe that anymore. And, you know, were I to be able to go and erase it from every place that I'd said it, I'd probably want to.
1: Yeah, interesting. Love it. Um, and one piece of advice, uh, your top piece of advice to give to a new lifter starting out besides get a coach. Uh,
2: top bit of advice for a new lifter starting out. Uh, this is super trite, but like have fun. Um, I think, and actually people really do make this mistake in powerlifting too early is like, we're so inclined to try and do things that we think are optimal and particularly to specialize our training really early. Mm -hmm. And there are so many powerlifters I work with who like their first exposure to lifting weights was trying to take powerlifting seriously Mm -hmm. where they had no foundation, you know, no training capacity, no muscle mass, no just general coordination or anything like that. And I feel like had they just sort of said, I'm going to go to the gym and like, I'm interested in powerlifting, I want to get strong, but I'm going to do every little thing that pertains to that and a little bit of other stuff too, just for fun. They would probably have developed a whole lot more, like more capacity to be good powerlifters in the future. So that's number one. And then number two is just that like, in order to actually get good, you're going to have to do it for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I think the risk to, to burning out and things when training just becomes this crazy, serious endeavor is so much higher than for people who are like grateful for the opportunity to train users as a chance to see their friends, do things that they find rewarding because they've acknowledged that like they're going to have to do this for years, irrespective. So like doing something that's 2% more optimal, but 90% more boring is just probably not going to be worth their time. Mm. I think people who can do that, not take themselves too seriously and just enjoy it for what it is are going to do way better. So that would be my advice is have fun.
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting. Because you've obviously found that along the way. Because a lot of people that don't have fun are the people that come and win their first comp and are like, "I'm the shit." Uh, and especially if they take a record or take like a national championship, because they're the only one in the weight class, the only two in the weight class, or whatever. A lot of those people, um, I get it a lot from people who transfer from um, obscure bodybuilding federations or obscure bikini federations. They're like, oh, "I'm a winner. I'm gonna excel in whatever I do." It's like, <laughs> You're going to find out really quickly that there's people that are way stronger than you, not because they're just more gifted than you, but because they've been doing a fucking long time. Right.
2: Yeah. And you know what else um, I've noticed is like when I, so when I pulled 247, that story I told you mm. up until, um, I want to say near the end of that year, that was actually the heaviest deadlift by an under 83 junior for like a very large part of 2014 either that or it was that the heaviest deadlift by an 83 junior in 2013 had been like 240 kilos. Yeah. Nowadays that sucks. Like, you know, there would be 83 kilo juniors falling out of trees all across Australia who pull way more than that. <laughs> and a lot of people will like say, I'm not going to compete in powerlifting until I'm really, really good. But mm-hmm. the problem is that the talent pool probably advances so much faster than you ever will. That like, if you don't just get in there and have a good time and let yourself improve at the rate you're going to improve anyway, your like good enough threshold is going to grow faster than you ever can. And you're just going to feel like a dipshit anyhow. So yeah. like, yeah, you should just go compete.
1: <laughs> it's a, apply it to any other sport and see how dumb it sounds. Like, Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to race on my bike till I can do tour de France. Like, all right, Okay. Yeah, sure thing. Exactly. Um, and maybe that's not the best analogy, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, I'm trying to think of Shara's two extra questions that we asked Dr. Pat. I think one of them was if you could eradicate one thing from the fitness industry, what would it be?
2: Fuck, that is a hard one. Eradicate one thing from the, all other coaches. <laughs> <Okay>. That's
1: fucking. <laughs> that's fucking wise, man. That's the best business decision
2: you can make. Um, like honestly. I, I don't know and it's not because I've become like a I'm tolerant of everything guy but like my initial answer would have been like really useless exercise modalities and there are a few but at the same time, I, I, like, I really do have that belief that like the exercise that you do is better than exercise that you don't and if people enjoy doing kind of dumb shit provided it's not immediately injurious like let them be and I would rather have somebody fall in love with fitness and then change their mind about what they do than have them put off by fitness because they're limited in their choices. So there's that supplements are kind of bullshit. There's plenty of them that, that I would rather see the back end of, and probably the world would be better if we didn't have a fixation with supplements and, and crazy diets and things. But, you know, I'm just not sure that I would expend my energy hating them. I, again, I'd rather let people, like I said, fall in love with stuff and then change their mind about it than eliminate their choices. So I don't know all other coaches. I'll, I'll stick with that.
1: <laughs> I was going to say you just spent three minutes not answering the question, but uh, all other coaches will take that as the answer. Yeah, I'm
2: gearing up for a career in politics, man.
1: I think, um, I think the last one is what are you most excited about for the industry in the next five years?
2: Um, definitely the eventual launch of my mentorship. I would say that that's, if there were going to be a world changer, that would be it. <laughs> um, but You know, that's my facetious answer. I don't really have a very serious one. Um, I think that that COVID and just the fact that people have had to move towards delivering online models and hybrid service models has probably one meant that the quality of services that people have offered has improved and the breadth of services that people have offered has had to improve. And so in the next few years, I do expect to see more and more integration of technology and more and more integration of like means of -of out-of-session support. And I think what will happen with that is that the people who are really astute and diligent like coaches are going to find ways to basically do everything that a coach does better in a way that lets them handle more athletes remotely in a way that starts to emulate in-person coaching better. And I'm not sure exactly what that's going to be, but I'm certain that it will be like technology oriented. So in the next five years, I'm excited to see what those changes are. I don't know what the forefront is going to be, but there will be some type of, yeah, coaching revolution, I think.
1: Awesome. Love it. All right. Will Berkman, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Follow us, like us, share us. Okay, that's the end. (laughs)